You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 27. We are are actually going to look at three chapters this morning. And uh, we looked at, uh, a few weeks ago, we looked at Jeremiah's call in chapter 1 in... uh, We sampled some of Jeremiah's preaching in uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, and then we looked at one of the complaints of Jeremiah in chapter 15 in that particular section. This section uh, in chapters 21 through 29 of Jeremiah speaks of of the, the imminent invasion of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. This is to be a judgment of God on the people of Judah and even the surrounding nations because they have not turned toward God and followed His Word. And uh, that judgment Jeremiah has been warning about is, is now imminent, even happening. And I want us to look at chapters 27 through 29 this morning. I'm not going to read it all, but just portions from each chapter. We'll begin in chapter 27, verses 1 through 11. In the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, thus the Lord said to me, make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Send word to the king of Edom, the king of Moab, the king of the sons of Ammon, the king of Tyre, and the king of Sidon, by the hand of the envoys who have come to Jerusalem, to Zedekiah, king of Judah. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And I've given him also the beast of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. But if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, and with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. So do not listen to your prophets, your diviners, your dreamers, your fortune tellers or your sorcerers who are saying to you, you shall not serve the king of Babylon, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you, with the result that you will be removed far from your land, and I'll drive you out and you will perish. But any nation that brings its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon and serve him, I will leave on its own land to work it and dwell there, declares the Lord. Now, Beginning verse 12, he speaks essentially the same message to Judah's king. And and beginning in verse 16, he speaks basically the same message to the priest and the people. Look at chapter 28, verses 1 through 4. In the same year, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, 
the son of Azur, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord, in the presence of the priest and all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years I will bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I will break the yoke of the king of Babylon. And look down in verse 10. Then the prophet Hananiah took the yoke bars from the neck of Jeremiah the prophet and broke them. And Hananiah spoke in the presence of all the people, saying, Thus says the Lord, Even so I will break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, from the neck of all the nations within two years. But Jeremiah the prophet went his way. Now look in chapter 29. Verse 1, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now the contents of that letter begin in verse 4. Here's what the letter said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'll be found by you, declares the Lord, and I'll restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I'll bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your help in understanding the the times in which these uh, words were preached and meant for, but but also, Lord, your word and the application for what it means to us today. And so, Lord, please, by your spirit, illumine our minds and hearts to hear and to receive and to believe. And I pray that you would use me as your servant, Lord. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What if I, what if you heard that our nation was going to be defeated, uh, decimated, dominated by a new world superpower. 
and that such an event was imminent. That everyone who told you anything different was simply lying. That the majority of our population would be transported to live in this conquering nation, serving them. Uh, That this situation would go on for many years with with really no possibility of change. And, And that all of this was because God has decided that it would be so. If you can fathom any of that and think about all the implications of what that might mean, you you might better understand what's going on here in this particular passage and and with the nation of Judah during Jeremiah's day. Uh, That was precisely the message that Jeremiah was was charged to, to preach. And it was precisely the conditions of which this was going to happen. And if you were among those hearing that message from Jeremiah and you were still trying to cling to your faith in God and and to be faithful in following Him in the midst of a nation that had largely turned their backs on God and His Word, you you were faced with this very difficult path. What, What are you to do in the midst of this? Who are you to listen to and believe? How are you to respond? In this. Dale Ralph Davis sums up the, these three chapters in this particular way, one sentence. He says, God sometimes decrees a course of history which his people cannot welcome enthusiastically, but in which they must live faithfully. I think that summary is right on target. in in terms of these three chapters, and and it helps us to understand and and apply these truths that are before us, first for them and and their time and context, but then also as we think about our own lives, our own place in in history where we find ourselves. First, Jeremiah reminded his listeners that there, there is a decree that controls history. It's really the message, his message of, of chapter 27. There's a, there's a decree from God. We're told there in verse 1 that this is early in the reign of King Zedekiah. So this is around 593 B.C. It's just a few years before Nebuchadnezzar, uh, or just a few years before this, rather, Nebuchadnezzar had already visited Jerusalem. And he had robbed the temple of its treasures and carted them off to to Babylon. And he had also taken off some 10,000 of their citizens, mainly uh, younger folks of the the highest levels, if you will, the, the cream of the society, of the Judean society, including he also took their king at that time, which was Jehoiakim. And he replaced him. Nebuchadnezzar put Zedekiah in there as kind of a puppet king. And King Zedekiah was expected to maintain order, and he was expected to pay tribute to King Nebuchadnezzar, and and pretty much all would be well if he did that. But after a short time, there was a kind of rebellion in the air. 
And there was division among the people in Jerusalem, whether they should continue to submit to Babylon in this way and to pay these taxes, these tributes to him. And and there were other nations surrounded them that were also thinking the same thing. So what's happening here in chapter 27 is, is perhaps like a but like an international conference, if you will, a regional international conference that was taking place and all the surrounding nations, they sent their envoys to Jerusalem to talk about what is it that we're supposed to do? How are we, how are we supposed to live in this? And, and maybe they could form an alliance together against Nebuchadnezzar. Now we can be pretty confident, I think, to say that Jeremiah was likely not on the invitation list uh, to come to this, but nevertheless, God tells him to go and to sort of crash the party. Verse 2, chapter 27, God said to him, make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. A, a yoke, as you imagine, hitches a team of oxen together to do whatever work that the farmer is having done. In biblical times, it was kind of a long piece of wood, a crossbar is laid across the necks, and it had like straps or these ropes that would come down and connect the two oxen together. And verse 3, presumably, Jeremiah wearing one half of this oak around his neck and perhaps holding the other half, he heads over to the conference hall where all of these delegates are meeting to talk about these things to deliver to them God's message of what they should do. And uh, if, his, if his entrance was, if you can picture that, was decidedly very undiplomatic, uh, his speech was even more so. Christopher Wright reminds us to keep in mind that those who are present at this, con- this delegation were not merely ambassadors of different kings, but they represented different countries who had their own gods. Each of them had their own gods that they felt were, they were worshiping and, and were, was in control of the, of the times. Here's the message God told him to give. Verses 4 through 7, give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters, it is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the men and animals that are on the earth, and I give it to whomever it seems right to me. God says, now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I've given him also the beast of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes, and then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Now, this message is obviously emphasizing the sovereignty of God, isn't it? The kingship of God. The fact that he's, he's in total dominance. God, God rules over politics. He rules over history. He rules over nations. It's a rightful sovereignty. He says in verse 4, God is the all-powerful. He's the Lord of hosts. He's the God of Israel. But you understand He's also the God of these other nations, right? All the resources, all of the power in the universe, seen and unseen, are under Yahweh's control, under Yahweh's disposal. It is His because verse 5, He reminds them He created it all. 
He's made the earth and everyone and everything in it. And verse 6, he has the, verse 5, he has the right to do what he wants with it, including giving that power to others. He says, I give it to whomever it seems right to me. It's a rightful sovereignty. It's also a precise sovereignty, isn't it? Verses 6 and 7 teach this. God's power is not vague. It's not theoretical. His sovereignty, notice there in verses 6 and 7, it includes names and dates, doesn't it? This is the level of power and detail that our God has. But we don't always see it because God doesn't always disclose the details to us, but here He does. He says these nations, including Judah, He's naming names, will be ruled by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. And it's going to be for a certain time. It's going to be his son who's going to succeed Nebuchadnezzar and his grandson after that who's going to precede him. And so it's going to be God's sovereignty is over all of these details. Jeremiah reminds these dignitaries that it's God who rules kingdoms and kings. Reichen comments here, God is so powerful and His rule is so absolute that He can speak about the momentous events of world affairs in the most casual way. He, he parcels out kingdoms the way people pass out sticks of gum. He's like the, he's like, I know you've seen this, he's like the Vitraza chair mat guy. Have you seen that guy? I love the chair mat so much, I just bought the company, you know, just nonchalance. This is the way God speaks about these details. He says to to King Nebuchadnezzar, here you go, you you want a kingdom, I'm going to give you a kingdom. Here it is. God calls the most powerful king in the world at that time, he calls him my servant, Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah responds, reminds all of these nations, it is futile to rebel against God. And it's futile to rebel, to re- rebel against Babylon because you would be rebelling against me. Verse 8, if any nation or kingdom will not serve this Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon and put its neck under the yoke of the king of Babylon, God says, I will punish that nation with the sword, with famine, with pestilence, declares the Lord, until I have consumed it by his hand. There's no way to get out from this yoke, he says. There's this clause in verse 7. It makes this kind of a sobering sovereignty as well, doesn't it? He says, all the nations shall serve him, that is Nebuchadnezzar and his son and his grandson, until the time of his own land comes. There's a reminder there, isn't it? It's, it's, you see this example, you think about what, what he's talking about here. It's a reminder and a warning for any superpower in the world. I always hesitate to, to say this because it sounds unpatriotic, and I don't mean that to be at all. I, I love our nation. Don't you love our nation? But, but there may be in God's sovereignty a point in, in, in which that phrase, the time of our own land, comes to an end. That's, that's in some ways a terrifying thought, isn't it? We are, we are not guaranteed because we're a superpower. And 
When you think about today, on the whole, we are not a godly nation. We, we are an immoral people. We are a covetous people. We are an idolatrous people. We're a wicked nation. And, and in many ways, you, you, you look around, we're, we're ripe for the judgment of God. And, and brothers and sisters, we dare not presume that because we are some kind of a superpower that we are beyond God's power. And we need to confess that we too are in the hand of this sovereign God. A God who decrees, who determines politics and history. And, and in light of that as well, we need to be the kind of people who are seeking repentance before Him. For ourselves and praying for it for our governing officials and, and faithfully proclaiming this message. And we do not need to presume on God in this way. It's not popular to say out loud, is it? It's like, oh man, I don't want to think about this. It wasn't popular for Jeremiah to say this either. At least I'm not wearing a yoke this morning. That'd be kind of weird, huh? I'm sure he was escorted out of the building promptly and probably labeled a lunatic, that crazy Jeremiah. But in many ways, Jeremiah was merely repeating what had been said to Israel long before. In fact, it's one of the most prominent themes in the Old Testament, if you read it. And, and it really forms the basis of, of our New Testament as well, the New Testament mission. I'm sure you remember these words of Jesus. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, he said. God is in charge of history. And... The message of Jeremiah is we better get with his program, not ours. This was the basis of it. It brings us secondly, though, to a dilemma that involves the truth and the question, what if someone tells you something differently? That's really the theme of chapter 28, uh, which happens in the very same time frame, in a very public venue, in the presence of Jeremiah, this prophet named Hananiah comes along, chapter 28, verse 2, and he says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have broken the yoke of the king of Babylon. Within two years, I'll bring back to this place all the vessels of the Lord's house, which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, took away from this place and carried to Babylon. And I will also bring back to this place Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and all the exiles from Judah who went to Babylon, declares the Lord, for I'll break the yoke of the king of Babylon. Notice the wording there. He doesn't say, I think... I think this is going to happen. I think this is the way it's going to go. This might happen. Notice the wording he uses, which is exactly the same as Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord. He even picked up on the symbolism in verses 10 and 11. We won't read them, but if you look down there, he took Jeremiah, we read them earlier, he took the yoke that was around Jeremiah's neck and he, and he threw it on the floor and he busted it all to pieces. Thus says the Lord, he said. Davis notes here, he says, it's like a faith healer who takes away somebody's crutches and heaves them off the stage. All the people probably clapped. I mean, it was great stuff. Church was so much fun when Hananiah was there. It was this positive message, and it came with certainty and vigor and even impressive stage effects, you know. And, and there's no doubt his message was popular, right? It was bold, it was patriotic, it was 
uplifting. I mean, whose church would you rather go to? Would you rather go to Jeremiah's church, you know, where it's doom and gloom? Or would you rather go uh, to, to, to Hananiah's church? Because Hananiah, he will tell you what you want to hear. And in soothing tones, he's, he promises you're going to be free from all of your troubles in such a very short time. They're just all going to go away in two short years. There were other prophets preaching this message. You read through Jeremiah, you'll see this throughout. Chapter 8, verse 13, there were prophets who were preaching this. You shall not see the sword, nor shall you have famine, but I will give you assured peace in this place. In other words, the message was, we are in times of peace. What, why are you so worried about things for other nations? This is a peaceful time. We don't need to be worried about our relationship with the Lord. We don't have to be worried about the judgment of God. This is all going to be over with in a short, very short time. So who do you believe? Who do you believe? Who has the truth? How do you know? I love Jeremiah's first response. It's very interesting. He basically says to him, Hananiah, I hope you're right. He says, no, he, I hope you're, you're right. And this whole thing is over with in and, and, and two years. And it all goes away. He even prays for that. Notice, notice verse 6. He says, amen <laughs> to Ananias. Amen. I try to get you all to say amen every now and then. This is, this is good. It's right in the text. Amen, he says. May the Lord do so. May the Lord make the words that you have prophesied, Hananiah, make, he make them come true. I'm all for it. I sure hope you're right. But then Jeremiah points to the prophetic messages of the past, verse, 20, verse, verse 8. He says, The prophets who preceded you and me, though, from ancient times, prophesied war, famine, and pestilence against many countries and, and great kingdoms. Understand what he's saying there. He's, saying, he's reminding Hananiah that, that the purpose of the prophetic office in the Old Testament was always to call a wayward people back to God. To urge them to repent, to warn them of the consequences of not doing so. And frankly, Hananiah's message wasn't taking any of those things seriously at all. As Derek Kidner notes this, what we might describe as wishful and unorthodox teaching, talking about Hananiah, God more briefly calls, in verse 15, a lie, and in verse 16, a rebellion. I, I fear... This is the problem with, and I know you hear me talk about this, it's, it's to warn you about preaching that is, that is out there, because there's so many voices that are out there, and there's so many parallels with this with the modern church, I think. You know, false teachers usually mean well. Um, the, the, often they're very nice people, the, the, very genuine kind of people. They, they even claim to speak from the Lord. This, this says the Lord. They may even say some good things. But it's, uh, beloved, it's what they don't say that makes their teaching so false and dangerous. It's what they leave out. Namely, God's holiness, God's justice, man's sin, man's need for salvation, desperately to turn to God, to turn away from his sin, to turn and, and obey. But the lies of Hananiah are still being taught today, and 
We're told in the New Testament they'll be repeated right up to the return of Christ. Listen to Paul, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. He says, while people are saying, here's what they're saying, there is peace and security, just like Jeremiah's day. There's just peace and security. Then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. So how do you determine the truth? Well, Jeremiah wants us to pray, doesn't he? He, he, he teaches us to pray, but then, then I think what he's saying here is he, he wants us to interpret what's going on around us through the lens of God's Word. What has God said in His Word? And to look at our world through the lens of His Word, not our politics, not our feelings, not our dreams or hopes of what we think and want things to be, but what does the Scripture say? The whole Bible, not just the parts that we prefer. Clearly, the nation of Judah has turned their backs on God and His Word. And we've seen examples over and over again of that. Sometimes the best thing you can do is steer clear of false teachers. Jeremiah does that. Verse 11, he, he just walks away, doesn't he? Sometime later, the Lord tells Jeremiah to go back to Hananiah. This is verse 13. The Lord says, go tell Hananiah, thus says the Lord, you have broken wooden bars. Talking about that yoke. But you have made in their place bars of iron. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I have put upon the neck of all the nations an iron yoke to serve Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. No, that's the Lord responding and saying, uh, my word is like iron, it will stand. Under an iron yoke, he says, you'll serve Nebuchadnezzar. And then verse 15, and Jeremiah the prophet said to the prophet Hananiah, listen, Hananiah, the Lord has not sent you and you have made this people trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will remove you from the face of the earth. This year you shall die because you've uttered rebellion against the Lord. And verse 17 says, In the same year, in the seventh month, the prophet Hananiah died. You would think that would have been enough to cause people to listen and believe. <laughs> Jeremiah's word. But it didn't. What a difficult time this must have been. God sometimes decrees a course of history which his people cannot welcome enthusiastically. I mean, you've got a nation here that just seems hell-bent, literally, on rebelling against God and his word. Just everything they can You've got governing leaders who aren't concerned at all for the righteousness of God. You've got preachers like Hananiah who are, uh, instead of sounding alarms and warnings and calling people back to God, are really saying to them, it's okay, it's peace, I don't know what you're worried about, there's peace and security. How, how are God's people supposed to live in this mess? Well, that's the message of chapter 29. And we see there a directive to be faithful, to be faithful. I mentioned a moment ago, several thousand members of the upper class 
had already been deported to Babylon. These included politicians, artisans, metal workers, young men you may recall uh, like Daniel uh, and uh, some of my favorite bedtime stories, Shadrach, Meshach, and the Abednego growing up, um, those young men. And so Jeremiah in chapter 29, he decides to send them a letter to where they are in Babylon to urge them to, it's interesting, to urge them to remain under the yoke. And in one sense, his encouragement to be faithful concerns very ordinary things. Verses 5 and 6, he says, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce. Take wives, have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons. Give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. And do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its, in, in its welfare, in the city's welfare, you will find your welfare. It's interesting words, isn't it? It's like he's saying, I want you to engage in normal activities of life. He goes on, they weren't, as verse 8 says, to listen to the false prophets and believe that this was going to be short-lived and that they didn't need to do any of these things. You see, that was the temptation. Well, you know, we're going to be out in two years, right? That's what Hananiah says, so we don't need to do any of these things. Let's just wait. Jeremiah says, no, don't do that at all. They needed to plant themselves there. They needed to marry and have kids. He uses the word multiply. It's the same language in Genesis at the creation when God says, uh, be fruitful and, and multiply. It, 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 it gives the sense that this was to be some kind of a, a beginning a, a, or, or this exile could be a fresh creational start, if you will. You can imagine the critics saying, you know, what? Raise kids in Babylon? Raise, you want us to have kids and raise kids in the city of Satan? You, you, you want us to pray for the welfare of Babylon? And Jeremiah says, yes, because, because you're going to be there for a while. So he says, be faithful in the ordinary things of life. What do we do as Christians in America as I think we would all agree that is increasingly becoming more pagan and godliness and godless. What do we do? Well, I think first, if we heed this, it is to be faithful in the ordinary things of life, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of Romans 13 all over again. If you, I know that was a while back, but we, I, I looked at this passage in that particular message. It was the idea of being good citizens, you know, and, and, and raising godly families and, and so forth. It, it's remarkable to think about, even in our own time today, how ordinary faithfulness, the ordinary things that he's talking about here, faithfulness in godly marriages between a husband and, and a wife, raising children to follow God, working hard for your employers, praying for the welfare of your city, these very ordinary things that they can be such an extraordinary witness to the glory and goodness of God. And yet they are. And they're increasingly becoming so, aren't they? And the chaos around us. Notice, there's hope for the, the faithful. Verse 10 and 11, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. 
I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. What great, what a great verse. But hopefully you can see that this verse is a favorite verse among many. It's often taken very much out of context, isn't it? I know many of you have, you cling to that verse, you got, got that written somewhere, perhaps on a picture or whatever. This is, this is a surprising word of hope to a people who were literally standing in judgment. This is not a promise that was made to individuals. It's not a personal promise to you, in other words, but a promise made to God's people in exile. That even through the trials of judgment, that, that God has a plan in this, in His grace and in, in His goodness. Notice, the, finally, the particular directive about faithfulness in verses 12 and 13. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Now, it's very unfortunate to me that the ESV inserts the word then in verse 12 or interprets it that way rather than the word and, which I think is much more accurate. Because it leaves you the impression, if you read that, the verse in the context, it leaves you the impression that, that after 70 years, then you'll call upon the Lord. How many of you know that's never right, right? <laughs> No, it should read, and you will call upon me. In other words, now is the time. Where you're at in exile, now is the time to call upon the Lord, to come to Him, to pray to Him. This was wonderful words of hope to them. Remember, they're in Babylon. They're in the nation. God is the God of Israel. Not Babylon, is He? But what He's reminding them is yet God is there with you in Babylon. Amen. It's a good place. It's not in the text, but you should amen. God is with them there. They can respond faithfully right now, even in their present distress in Babylon, by calling on Him and turning to Him and obeying His Word. I think about the relevance of this in our own, in our own lives. Maybe God has been leading you down a course in which you do not want to go. I mean, how often that happens in, in life, in, in, in the Christian life. We find ourselves on paths or in circumstances that are less than ideal, just like these, these believers who are in Babylon. Maybe it's because of your sins that you're there. Maybe it's the sins of other people. Maybe you're thinking, this is not the, this is not the nation I prefer it to be. This is, maybe this is not the marriage I, 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 was, I was hoping for. This is not the job I was wanting to find myself in. You, you find yourself in situations that you cannot fix and that you cannot undo in which there are no immediate solutions to that. And, and Jeremiah reminds us, be faithful where you're at. You may be in Babylon, but you can still be faithful there as a servant of the Lord. You may be in a box of circumstances that you cannot change and you desperately would like out of, but you can be faithful. The same God of Jeremiah says, you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Is that where you're? 
heart and your attention is directed, church? Well, time's up. All this talk about yokes reminded me of this incredible invitation from our Lord, which really kind of mirrors, I think, verses 12 and 13. Jesus said this in Matthew 11. He said, Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And you remember what he says next? He says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, he says, all who are weary. What an invitation for us today, church. Lord, thank you um, for these, again, it seems like ancient words to Jeremiah, but yet, Lord, have so many parallels for where we are in life today. Uh, may we, Lord, come under the yoke of our Lord Jesus Christ and find our rest in Him. I pray that today, Lord, as perhaps some who are here who have been on that, that path where they've been rebelling against You and making decisions and, and uh, things that uh, not looking to You, not calling on You, that, that today, Lord, You would work in their hearts. Help them to see the beautiful yoke of what Jesus, who He is, what He's done for them. That they would find rest and salvation because there is no other salvation apart from His. So Lord, may we turn to Him now and worship and praise. Set our hearts to live faithful, even at times ordinary lives, faithful in the ordinary things. Men, women, boys, and girls who are simply directing our lives towards you, being faithful in the places that you put us. Help us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.